Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Hi, I am Jonna Emil. I'll be your host today. And with me, I have Dr. Sally Miller. Dr. Miller, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? I will just take a moment to say that I am a nurse practitioner with multiple board certifications, but psych mental health is the most recent five years ago now, and I do see patients in the mental health outpatient setting one day a week. I am a clinical professor at Drexel University where I teach nurse practitioner students, primarily pharmacology and psychopharmacology and physiology. And uh, I have been with Fitzgerald Health as a faculty person for 21 years, and I'm a fellow of the American Academy or Fellow of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. This is what happens when you have so many things under your belt, you can't even say it anymore. (laughs) So Sally and I, we've had a ton of great talks together, and I personally have learned a lot. And I want to piggyback on what we ended up speaking about last time. We talked a lot about depression, PTSD, those types of concepts. So we're going to get back into that and then also kind of talk about you know, where do we go from here and and what can we do with this information that we have? So Sally, could you talk to us a little bit about the treatment? So treatment for depression, and then we can talk about treatment for PTSD. What, what do we need to know about that? So as always, the starting treatment really requires recognizing when drug therapy is appropriate and when it's not. And so once you confirm your diagnosis of major depressive disorder or a major depressive episode, very often drug therapy is helpful. Hopefully not for the long haul, but you know, remember priority one is to establish expectations with your patient. Have that conversation based on their history, based on the symptoms right now. Do you expect this drug therapy to go on for four months, six months, a year, or do we expect it to be chronic? So those are just those are all the prefaces to really having successful pharmacotherapy. Another thing that is hugely important, and I, I feel like I'm stating the obvious here to the healthcare providers because we know it, but we have to remember that patients don't. And an important part of pharmacotherapy for depression is it takes many, many weeks to even begin Mm. to be able to make an assessment as to whether or not it's going to work. Remember, a lot of people who are coming into the healthcare system for the first time for help with depression, it could be that their only experience with medication is three days of an antibiotic for a UTI. They take it for three days, they're cured, symptoms are gone, they feel great, you know, life is good. And then when they come to us, typically at their lowest low, by the time somebody's depression gets to the point where they make an appointment, and it's usually the primary care setting, it's usually our primary care providers that see this, by the time they make that appointment, whatever has been going on has usually been going on for a while. Now they're at their low, so we're seeing them for the first time, but they've been feeling this for weeks, months, who knows? And then one of the first things that we have to make sure they understand is that it will easily four weeks before we even begin to make an assessment of whether or not something is working. So once you commit to starting an antidepressant, it's really important to try not to stop it unless it's absolutely required. So we wanna make sure the patient is prepared for all eventualities, like how long it will take, that there might be some adverse effects early on. Laying that foundation really is the key to having successful therapy 
you know, for the long haul. Uh, one of the biggest trials, evidence trials in treating depression is called STAR-D. The mental health providers listening know what it is. The primary care providers may not, but STAR-D was a big trial about the treatment of depression and evaluating combinations, et cetera. And one of the things we learned from that trial, and it has its critics, it wasn't perfect, but one of the things we did learn is that the first drug therapy has the best chance of remission just based on the way brain cells respond to changes in neurotransmitters. You know, when we give an antidepressant, we are changing the concentration of those neurotransmitters, serotonin, norepinephrine, the ones I keep talking about. And when you change the concentration, brain cells actually adapt to that change in concentration. So there will be physiologic neuroplastic changing. So the first time we give patients medication, that's the best chance we've got at getting a remission. Every time we change therapy, the likelihood of achieving remission drops just a little bit. That's not to say we don't do it. That's not to say it, we don't can't give people help. But the best chance with of the best outcomes comes with the first approach to drug therapy. So it's really important to try to pick the best one. So mm. then having said that, you, you know, we look at the classes of medications. The selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors are pretty much the first line in the primary care setting. They are very effective for especially what we call functional depression. You know, the patient that wasn't depressed before and then something happened and now they meet criteria and we want to help them through this event. The SSRIs are extremely helpful. They tend to be very well tolerated. But they're also not the appropriate drug for a more major non-functional phenomenon. Some people present as non-functional, meaning that maybe they've lost their job because of their depressed mood. Maybe they've lost a relationship or, you know, some major thing has happened in their life. I mean, I've met people who were incarcerated. And so the depression led them to a place where they wound up being incarcerated. These are major life events for yeah. them. And SSRI might not be the first choice. So we have many tiers of medication. Typically, the SNRI is considered the go-to drug for the patient who doesn't respond to an appropriate trial of an SSRI and a patient who presents as non-functional. But beyond that, we have lots of other options. And even in primary care, antipsychotics are becoming more and more commonly used for treatment-resistant depression, people who don't respond to those lesser therapies. So there are lots of options out there for primary care. If the primary care provider is well-informed and understands the medications and their usage, that it's very appropriate to use them in the, in the primary care setting. Very good. What about then PTSD, treating that? Is that very different than the treatment for depression? PTSD is really different. Okay. And, and again, you know, there is the evidence-based way. There's the best way, according to the literature. And then there is the routine that so many fall into. And, and uh, you know, I do it too. I mean, we're all guilty of, we see things through our lens. So medication prescribers see things through the lens of prescribing medication. But PTSD really is different. It is one of the family of anxiety disorders. It is an anxiety disorder in that the core symptoms are worry, that perseverative thought, and anxiety, that physiologic fear response, that hypervigilance, you know, palpitations, shortness of breath, all of that. But what makes it PTSD is that the patient has a history at least a month prior, a remote history. It could be a month ago. It could be 
10 or 20 years ago, but a remote history of something bad that happened to them or something bad that they observed that for some reason now the brain is making associations and triggering a response to that. The really interesting thing about PTSD is that it is commonly recognized that the memory of this bad thing is stored deeply in the hippocampus, right? The hippocampus is one of those deep subcortical structures. It, it's got a pathway to the amygdala, which is the fear gland, right? I mean, the amygdala is fear central in the brain. When you perceive something that, that could frighten you and respond to it with those physical responses, that all happens in the amygdala. Uh, I mean, like we say people that have no fear, you know, thrill seekers, people that jump yeah. off buildings and stuff like that, they have no amygdala. They are incapable of the fear ah. response. So if you think of the amygdala as the fear processing place, and it has a direct pathway deep in the brain to the hippocampus, which is command central for memory storage. When you store a memory deep in the hippocampus, and all of these are subcortical structures, your conscious brain is not aware of this at all, but all of our memories are stored in there somewhere. Sometimes they come out as a dream. Sometimes they never rise to the surface, but our memories are stored in the hippocampus, which articulates very directly with the fear response center. And so the theory with PTSD is that there are people who for some reason have a biologic predisposition that they will trigger these memories. And it's usually some unknown unconscious thing, like just a vague change in scent or temperature or atmosphere. Some, sometimes we'll see veterans that experienced horrible things decades and decades ago. And just by way of example, Vietnam was um, notorious for being very wet, you know, the jungle, lots of rain. Right. Right. And we've seen people with PTSD who would have panic attacks when, in retrospect, we can see that it's because the weather like was wet or maybe it had just rained and, and created like something that triggered that environment. Mm. And so this deep seated memory was, gener was was triggered in some way and produced this fear response. It's, it's, an ab it's a biologic abnormality. It doesn't happen to most of us. I mean, most of us have had bad things happen. And while it's not pleasant, we don't have PTSD. But some fraction of the population does. And so the most successful treatment is centered around the presumption of, of that event. The, and it's not a drug therapy. Unlike many of our other anxiety disorders where medication therapy is the mainstay and then non-medication therapy with a therapist is an ancillary or additional treatment. With PTSD, non-drug therapy is the mainstay of care. And truly, the best response to a patient, if someone makes an appointment and they say they're having anxiety or panic attacks or whatever the complaint is, and we drill down in that effort to really have the right diagnosis, if we find out that there is a remote event in their world and we think they may be having PTSD, the best thing to do is to refer them to an, a therapist and not just a therapist, but one who is a trauma therapist. And the primary modality they use is something called EMDR. It's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And I will tell you the first time I ever heard about it, it was like an hour long class at some conference and the instructor wasn't very interesting. And I thought, oh, I had the last hour of my life back. Like this is all junk and I don't believe it. And I just, I, I never gave it another thought. Like most people, if I don't understand it, 
it can't be any good, right? <laughs> Nothing narcissistic <Yeah>. in that. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> I didn't understand it, so I just blew it off. And then, thank goodness, I had the opportunity at some point later in my career to connect with an EMDR therapist and learned not only really what it does, but how effective it can be. And so it's based on the premise that the optic nerve is also very closely related in terms of conducting sensation to the hippocampus. I mean, the hippocampus is this just area about learning and um, you know, brain memory, subconscious, unconscious memory, all of these stimuli that come in get stored deeply in the hippocampus. And it has been, it has just been supported over and over again in the literature that rapidly moving eyes back and forth, just like the name implies, eye movement, lateral movement back and forth, it actually reprocesses thought. And people that have, like every time you re-experience a memory, it's, it's biological, it changes, something about it changes. So good memories in our world, we like to remember them, we think about them a lot, you know, like, I don't know, the day that you won a million dollars or the day that you got married or, you know, held your baby for the first time or whatever the happy thing is, we think about that a lot, not realizing that every time we experience that thought, there is some subtle impact on brain chemistry, those same neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, et cetera. I think we all can identify things that we remember that didn't happen or they didn't happen that way. I mean, were you ever certain you remembered something and you find out it happened very differently? Because the more we remember a thing, it will change. But the negative memories, the traumatic memories, we don't remember them. We try not to. So we don't have the opportunity to change them or process them. And so there is apparently a biologic response that occurs with rapid eye movement that is linked to processing in the hippocampus. And so, I mean, this is a multiple step process. You don't just sit somebody down and say, start moving your eyes back and forth. There is a preparation phase. There is a helping the patient prepare to re-experience the traumatic event. But while, while they are re-experiencing it, under the supervision of someone who is there to help them, they literally rapidly move their eyes back and forth and that sensory input is believed to actually alter the response to this negative memory. And I'm, I, I can't tell you how successful this, I mean, I've seen it be successful in people. Some people that were living for decades with PTSD and weren't even certain about what that traumatic event was. There is a Vietnam veteran that comes to mind that went through his whole life being, you know, medicated with, you know, Alprazolam and Ativan and this and that, and nothing really helps. And we don't, we really don't see a, a role for a benzodiazepine in that kind of panic attack because that blunts your ability to reprocess that memory. Whereas in say panic disorder or other anxiety disorders, sometimes a benzodiazepine is very necessary and helpful. In PTSD, it actually can be counterproductive. So that's not to say we never prescribe medication. I'm sure some of the people listening are saying, wait a minute, every patient I've ever seen with PTSD, we put them on an SSRI. Truly, the best way to manage PTSD, if, you're, if you make the diagnosis that PTSD is the origin of symptoms, is to refer the patient to a therapist. And the therapist should, that is the mainstay of care. Sometimes the therapist will reach out to you or send the patient back to you and say, hey, you know, we've been working on this. He's, he or she's still really having trouble. 
can we use some medication to augment the process? And of all of the medications out there, there are only two that have really been studied and demonstrated to offer any meaningful support in the treatment of PTSD. And one of them is an SSRI Zoloft, and the other one is uh, an old tricyclic antidepressant, one of the older school medications, imipramine. And while others may or may not do it, they just have not been studied extensively. But but EMDR, now it's being used for migraine pain, chronic pain, other forms of anxiety management. And it, it really appeals to me because it does capitalize on the abnormal biology, which, which is part of almost every mental health problem that we see. That's not to say it's the only problem that people do sometimes need help with cope, just general coping skills as well. But it's a, it's a very physiologic phenomenon. It has really been successful. And there have been lots of studies. The critics will say, well, doesn't the patient just benefit from the counseling, whether they move their eyes or not? They're still seeing a therapist. Mm. And, but there have been numerous studies that put people in two groups where one group gets everything except the eye movement and the other group gets the eye movement and the eye movement group it demonstrates clear statistically significant improvement. So it's just a very cool capture on what we know about the physiology of abnormal storage mem memory, abnormal storage of memory and how it can trigger that panic response uh, in an unexpected way. That's really interesting. I had never heard that technique ever before. And, and also I am just, I think maybe one of the, the people that assume that everything gets a pill thrown at it. And I think about PTSD, it's also going to get a pill thrown at it first. So that's that's nice and reassuring too, because I think of some of like my own patients I've had as a registered nurse, right? Or I think about peers that way that are resistant, right? To the idea of throwing pills at me, right? Like, is there something else I can do? And so that's nice. I think that's nice and reassuring to hear that there are alternatives if there is like a real fear or apprehension to starting with medication therapy, if in fact it was appropriate to, to not start it that way. That's very interesting. So then I think Sally knows all this stuff because right, she's an expert in this field, but I'm wondering, do you think, just even in your opinion, that we're gonna be seeing more, those who are providers, NPs like yourself, other providers, are we gonna be seeing more patients come in with these mental health symptoms or diagnoses that they might receive, these type of all the things that we've really been talking about. And in saying that, I, I ask because is it important then that we all know, we all understand this and that we all have the wherewithal to at least help get our patients to where they need to be, you know, in that moment? A hundred percent. I mean, this, what's happening in healthcare right now, no one could have anticipated. I mean, it really is unprecedented in our lifetime. I know that, you know, decades and decades ago, there had been other pandemics, but, sure. you know, and they're just as important. But in this day and age, not only do we have this pandemic, but we have information, probably too much information sometimes that is immediately available 24 seven. And so people are just overloaded, not just with the, the, the having to help people through this thing that is so frightening, but also not knowing what to believe. And you hear stuff at every turn. I mean, how many, how many channels are there? How many 
um, cable channels and satellite channels. It's not just three, six, and ten anymore, or not just you know I don't know what did the, the Pony Express <laughs> perhaps <laughs> in the last pandemic a hundred years ago. There's so much information everywhere. There's there are so many strong feelings about it, and people are afraid to talk because what if somebody else yells at them? And I, you know, like for instance, I know that. There are patients who choose not to have the COVID-19 vaccine. And it is not for me or any healthcare provider to impose our personal value system or judgment on that patient. It's our job to make sure that they have information available that is evidence-based and that we counsel them in accordance with standards of care. And then they decide what they will or don't do about it. But I can tell you that even having spoken with some of my patients, I find that there appears to be some level of prejudice in the hospital setting when they get mm-hmm. sick and go into the hospital. If they get COVID-19 and go into the hospital and have not been vaccinated, there is at least a perception about being treated differently. And I mean, I don't doubt it, to be honest with you, uh, yeah. treated differently than those who did get vaccinated and then wind up sick and get in the hospital. And so, you know, it's not for us to go down that road at all, except to remember as healthcare providers, it's not about our value system. It's about the patients. And our job is to make information available, you know, make good evidence-based, accurate information available. If there's ever a time that, we ourselves personally, because there are 200,000 MPs in the country, chances are some of them have some questions or their, their own personal religious or philosophical value system is not consistent with the evidence that is currently being presented to us or advocated by the CDC. And we can't force anybody to practice counter to their own value system. But what we do have to do is make sure that the patient has access to someone that can counsel them in accordance with current and evidence-based recommendations, because that's our professional responsibility. So uh, with all of this going on, uh, of course, people are, they just feel overwhelmed. Our healthcare providers feel out of control. And we know one of the things that we can do to help them is just break it down into small manageable pieces. What's that saying? How do you eat an elephant? And the answer is in small chunks. You know, little bits at a time. So I'm sure we're going to see more people. I hope we will see more people in the healthcare system because, you know, understandably they are, and I mean healthcare providers, I hope that we will see them reach out for care. I know I've, I've had a number of patients that were nurses were referred by other nurses who had come in. And not everybody needs a medication and not everybody has a lifelong diagnosis, but sometimes they just need some help recognizing what's going on and, and just to even talk about some of those non-pharmacologic ways to get to try to manage this particular crisis. Yeah, and I like that you said that, right? Because it reminds me of, you know, it's okay to not be okay. Right? I hear that and I say it a lot to even our, our peers in nursing and that the, you're welcoming, saying that I hope that we do, right? See more, that just means that it's okay. It's okay. And if you're feeling any type of way, you should reach out and that's a good thing in that way. And so- we advocate for our patients really well. We don't always advocate for ourselves so hot. And so I'm wondering, like, what do you imagine that NPs could do to advocate for our own selves, taking care of all these patients? How do we do that? How do you do that? <laughs> I mean, it's always easier said than done. It is yeah. always, always easier said than done. But just, you know, if you're not feeling a particular strain, I mean, if any any nurse that's listening or NP 
truly feels like their their anxiety symptom or depression is getting to that place where it's interfering with their ability to do their job or interact in their in their non-job life they should reach out for for help but for somebody who who isn't there yet but they're just understandably feeling you know overwhelmed by some of what they see and do every day you know, one of the basic foundational principles of health is that diversity is the strength of everything. I mean, it's a blanket statement that's true in every aspect of our life, whether it's your friends or your interest or your income stream, diversity is strength. So get away from it at the end of the day. You go to work, you give 110% and then come home and do something completely different. Don't come home and be online all night looking at all of that information overload that's available. Don't come home and talk all evening about your day. Uh, I mean, if you're getting to that place where you are just starting to feel like, oh man, I don't know, it's gonna be a bit much, something else, D diversity in terms of stimulation. I, I think that's huge and it's something that, that a lot of healthcare providers don't do. They do come home all night and try to find the answer to the next day. Better to just you know, watch something like uh, Impractical Jokers or some other mindless thing <laughs> that just takes you off in a different direction. Yeah, that's, I'm super guilty of that. So that's actually good advice. It's true. You know, you, we come home and we just want to do more of that. And I don't know why nurses in particular are so very bad at that, but I think that's really good advice to step away and kind of separate that. So how do you, is there anything that you could share with us about how you decompress or de-stress? If you've had a day where you're feeling like, I can't, today was just a day. What are things that, you know, just are helpful for you to, to get through that? You're not Googling anything. I know you're not doing that. You're not talking all night about it. So what are you doing? I really do watch Impractical Jokers. <laughs> but the other, the other thing that really works for me are my dogs. Yeah. I mean, I just... I take them outside and, you know, throw the ball with that chuck it thing. And I just love to watch them have such a good time. You know, I say ball and their ears go up and the tails <laughs> wag and they get so excited. And, I, you know, for the next hour, I don't think about anything else. I go outside with my dogs and I watch them run around and I throw it by accident in the water and they love that because I have to go get it. And it's just <laughs> it's just really just total, just totally decompressing. And so that, you know, that, that's my way. That sounds really nice. That sounds really nice. So before we wrap, I'm wondering, is there anything that you want to share with our NP audience about any of the conversations that we've had over these last episodes? Well, I guess, I mean, we, we, we've touched on, we, you know, we yeah. just sort of scratched the surface on so many different things. And there's so much more about all of these topics. I mean, as you can probably tell, I could go on ad infinitum about any one of them. <laughs> but what it really comes down to truly is if you are a nurse or a nurse practitioner or whatever, whatever your healthcare profession is, don't try to be that professional to your friends or family because it's a disservice. If, they, if you recognize something in them that they need a nurse or a nurse practitioner, then they should be referred to one that's not you. I mean, that yeah. really is just, that's a big deal. And then for the, for the people that are listening for their professional capacity, how we manage our patients, I guess, you know, the highlights are be very careful about putting a diagnosis on not just somebody's chart, but on their mind 
without really ensuring that you've evaluated diagnostic criteria in the same way that you wouldn't diagnose asthma without doing pre and post bronchodilator spirometry. We wouldn't diagnose an MI without an EKG and cardiac enzymes. Right. We don't want to diagnose depression or PTSD or anxiety without paying particular attention to the criteria because only once you have a really good assessment of what's wrong, then we can pursue the right treatment. Excellent. Excellent. I am a smarter person because I have hung out with you and I appreciate you so much for imparting knowledge on myself and everyone that's listening and really being a big advocate for mental wellness in the professional space and also in the patients, right? In the world and community that we serve. Thank you so much, Sally, for spending all this time with me and, and really dropping all of this knowledge on us. I appreciate it so much. It, my pleasure. And I'm really glad to have the opportunity. Awesome. Well, everybody who's listening in our audience right now, thank you so much for tuning in. And we look forward to doing much more of these conversations and having these dialogues. I'm Jonna Emil, and on behalf of myself and Dr. Sally Miller, thank you so much for joining us and take good care, everybody. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit elitelearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.